God always has a good reason for allowing what we consider to be evil. And we're going to be looking at two verses in Jeremiah. I want to introduce this uh, and show you a little clip just to remind you of what we've been looking at in Jeremiah. We've gone from Jeremiah who is described in, he describes himself in chapter nine, essentially as, as the, the prophet who wept. And it's just that statement should tell us something about the man the prophet who wept. No, I guess I say that so that you realise this is not some cold, calculated delivery of an, of, an, of an orator. This is not someone just trying to sound pretty because there was nothing pretty about what Jeremiah had to say to these people. Jeremiah began prophesying as a young teenager. He began speaking what God had given him for the people of Jerusalem and he was largely rejected and despised, and at one point he was beaten. Another point he was thrown down an empty well, well, with a rope tied to his foot, so he dangled upside down in mire, he says. And God only knows and what people would put into the bottom of a well when no one was looking. And he suffered greatly, and yet he continued to cry for his people because none of them truly realized or acknowledged their condition before God. And Jeremiah, the prophet who wept, would grow up to become a man in his 40s, his 50s, his 60s, and now we meet him in his 70s. He's been taken down to Egypt. He told them not to go, and he was taken by force by the survivors of Jerusalem, the survivors of the very prophecies that Jeremiah had been given to give to the people. And he's months away from his own death, which he prophesied that the Babylonians would track down the remnants in Egypt and slaughter them as well. That's why he told them not to go. And he himself would die. And now he turns his attention, as we see in chapters 48 through to 52, to the surrounding nations. And he has risen in stature to become what we might call a statesman. He is Jeremiah, prophet to the nations prophet to the nations and, and in this prophecy he's going to be dealing with three nations. The first nation is Babylon, the second is Assyria and then his own people. And this passage is called, this, this section, part 167 of our Jeremiah series is their Redeemer is strong. We're in verses 33 and 34 in just a moment. Jeremiah is moved by the people of Jerusalem's heart to rebel, to do that which God openly said and plainly said and to which they agreed not to do. And God had told them not to do it and they did it anyway. And now we come to this passage, just these two verses we're going to look at this morning and, 
And at this point in, in our story, Israel has been dispersed. Israel, the 10 northern tribes, if you understand that the nation of Israel is made up of 12 tribes and the 10 tribes to the north, known as Israel or Ephraim, as you read through your Bible, you'll see that they are called Israel Ephraim. If you're reading through First and Second Kings, which was written by Jeremiah, you'll see that he, he tracks the story of, of Israel coming from David, Solomon, and then it goes Rehoboam and uh, Jeroboam. And then from there, you have the history of the north and the history of the south through First and Second Kings. When Ezra comes to rewrite the story in First and Second Chronicles, Ezra goes David, Solomon, and then ignores the north and just tracks the southern kingdoms through. So if you're reading through First and Second Chronicles and you are wondering why is it different to First and Second Kings, that's why, because one, only one aspect of the nation is dealt with in Chronicles. And so in this, this we have, at this point in the story, we have the 10 northern tribes have already been taken by Assyria. Assyria has come and conquered them and, and taken them away and taken them away because they went into idolatry and turned their back on God. And God had, had, had said, if you do that, I will lift my hand of protection from you. And we'll see this in a moment. And now we're going to see that the same fate had happened to the southern tribes known as Judah. The smaller tribe, Benjamin, came under the banner of the larger tribe, Judah. And so now God had been using these Gentile or non-Jewish nations to fulfill the word of his covenant. Let's have a look at verse 33, see how Jeremiah picks it up. And the fact that I've told you that Jeremiah wrote first and second Kings should tell you that nearly every prophet in scripture was also a historian. I have found that those people who have the keenest sense of where history is going is, are those who know where history's come from. And so we read in verse 33, thus says the Lord of hosts, the people of Israel are oppressed and the people of Judah with them. All who took them captive have held them fast. They refuse to let them go. So Assyria originally took the 10 tribes into Assyria, which would have been to take them northeast. North is particularly important because it talks about the, the nations from the north. And then Babylon came and also took some of the residents of Jerusalem and Judah captive, which means take them back to populate cities in Babylon for Babylon's own prosperity. The, the prophecy or the condition of the covenant, a covenant is an agreement, and, and, and it's a really, a really, really important term. It's a really important word in, in the Bible because unlike, as I heard one AFL player this week say in talking about players whose contracts have got years to run and AFL clubs ignore them and let them go or pay them out or get rid of them or whatever. And one AFL player said, what on earth does a contract mean these days? What does it mean? And a contract is, uh, I guess, an agreement that has terms that has a time frame, but a covenant has no time frame. A covenant is, is an agreement that cannot and should never be broken. And yet God had contractual elements within the Old Covenant. In other words, you'll see the words 
Well, the word, if, occur in God's covenant with Israel. And this is what he said in Jeremiah, sorry, in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verses 27 and 28. This is what God said would happen. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land. Now, this is written by Moses. This is written, what are we, a thousand plus years before the events of Jeremiah. And I read this and I thought, this is uncanny. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land as they are this day. And you read the context. The context is that people will come to Jerusalem or come to the land of of Israel and go, where is everybody? And this is what will be said. These people turn their back on God and God has allowed enemies to come in and take them out of the land. And here we are. Here we are. Jeremiah chapter 50. This is exactly what has happened. Now we're going to read in the next verse, Jeremiah talking to the third nation. I said he was talking with three nations, Babylon, Assyria and his own people, the nation of Judah. And what he is going to say if I, was, if I was one of the people who heard what he had to say in this next verse, I would go, you have got to be kidding. You, you've got to be joking, Jeremiah. How can you say God is all powerful and all good when this has happened to us? So I need you to know this. God always has a good reason for allowing what we consider to be evil. He always has a good... There is is someone here today, and you need to know this right now. God always has a good reason for letting what we consider to be evil, bad, to happen. Always. How do we respond in the midst of that kind of, let's call it, confusion? How do you respond when things aren't going well? How do you respond when... Things just don't seem to be going the way you had in your five-year plan. How do you respond when, when tragedy, death, accident, family members get diagnosed with cancer or die and it wasn't in your diary? How do you handle that? How dare people get cancer when they didn't have an appointment? It was like... How do you handle the stuff of life that comes at you and you didn't see it coming? For many people, their response is to raise their hands, but not in open worship, but in a clenched fist. How dare you? God, do you know how important I am? How dare you do this to me? Who do you think you are? Sounds silly when I say it like that. At least I hope it does. But there is someone here today and you need to Not just get your head around this, you need to get your heart around this. And today, just as the hearers of Jeremiah in this particular verse would have wondered, there are people today who still wonder, if God is all-powerful, why couldn't he stop this? If God is all good, why would he want this? And so we need to understand what causes that confusion. And what causes that confusion is that God uniquely possesses two attributes. And if you'll just allow me, indulge me a moment, I'm going to bring you into a theological lecture just for the next five minutes. Is that okay? This is theology. This is, this is probably what you'd learn in, in 
systematic theology, but this is what we need to know. God possesses two uniquely possesses. That means no one else in the universe possesses these in the way God does. These two attributes. The first one, you may have heard of this word. We even use this word. It's associated with another word which someone described Jesus with and he challenged them as to why they were using it. And it's this word impeccability. Impeccability. It means absolutely good. There is nothing about God that is not good. Everything he does is good. There are some things that I do. No, sorry, cancel that. There are a lot of things that I do that are not good. But everything God does is good. Everything God does is good. Impeccability. That could be a word for today. Impeccability. I was just thinking about the impeccability of God today in church. People look at you and be impressed. They will be. They'll just be impressed. Here's the second word that God uniquely possesses, omnipotence. Omnipotence doesn't mean infinite power. It means all power. All, all the power that there is, God has it, as distinct from infinite, which has no limit to it. God has all power. He's all powerful. There, within his character, which means there's about seven things God will not do, God can do anything with the exception of the seven things that the Bible tells us he will not do. He can do anything. God is all-powerful. And when you think about people have you know, wrestled over, could Jesus have risen from the dead? After all, that's considered to be the greatest miracle of all. Uh, Ravi Zacharias says that's not the greatest miracle of all. Genesis 1.1 is the greatest miracle of all. The fact that there's anything in the beginning God created. Bam, right there. That's the miracle. And no one, no one has been able to counter the biblical data on that one yet. God possesses impeccability. He's absolutely good. If you met him, he, he would have no ulterior motive for your hurt. He would have no ulterior motive to injure you, deprive you, manipulate you in any way. That's impeccable character. And, and the other thing is he could do anything. He could do anything. Yesterday, in preparing for this, I had to watch a movie for ministry purposes called Elvis Meets Nixon. The price you pay, hey? And there's, it's a true story of when Elvis Presley turned up at the gate, of the, at the West Wing gate at the White House and said, I want to see the president. And the guards at the gate said, it was 1971, so Elvis is at the height of his popularity. He's making a million dollars a week in Las Vegas. Everyone knows who Elvis is. And eventually Nixon admits him in and, and, and as, as, the, as he comes in, the, 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 the lady who brings him in, is she's like, she's, oh, it's Elvis. <laughs> you know, she's seen Queen Elizabeth, she's seen kings of other countries, but now it's Elvis. <laughs> Elvis comes in and she goes, this is the White House, impressive, isn't it? She says, yeah, it's like my front veranda comes in and he meets President Nixon and President Nixon is, he's been given all the protocols. He has to go into a briefing room and he's told, now President Nixon has a can of Dr Pepper, no one touches that, that is just for President Nixon. He has a bowl of M&Ms on the table, they're just for looks, they're only for him, no one is to touch him. He comes in, sits on the couch, rips open the can of Dr Pepper, scoops a hand into the M&Ms and, and he's made himself at home. 
And Nixon, trying to impress Elvis, says, oh, that, that, you're looking at that on my, my coffee table there. That's a moon rock. And it's got a glass dome over it. And, and he says, take the dome off. Feel the moon rock. He said, no, nah, it's all right. Buzz Aldrin gave me one too. I'm watching this. I'm thinking, this is really interesting. How many times do we try to impress God, the king, not just of rock and roll, but the king of kings? The king of kings. What can you do to impress him? Look what I've done, God. These two qualities, we need to understand this, and, and we could look at the scriptures and see that these two qualities, and the, that passage that I mentioned in John is when someone came up to Jesus and said, good teacher, and Jesus said, whoa, 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 why do you call me impeccable? Well, why do you call me good? And the man should have just said, because you're God in the flesh. That was the invitation. Jesus created the segue, and he didn't. But that would have been the appropriate answer. Now think about that. God is incredibly good. God is all-powerful. And here, here you're a faithful Jew. You haven't bowed down to idols. You haven't gone after the other gods on the hills surrounding the, the six hills surrounding Mount Zion. You haven't practiced sexual immorality with the temple prostitutes of Baal. You haven't done any of that. And yet you're a victim. You've been taken away to Babylon. Thus... Knowing these two things that Scripture presents from the earliest chapters about God, you could have been forgiven for wondering, <laughs> what the heck is going on then? Why am I here? They've taken my house. They've murdered my children. I don't know where my wife is. I think she, God only knows what they did to her. I've got nothing. They would have stripped the men naked from the waist down and made them march from Jerusalem to Babylon. The utter humiliation of it. How can you say God is good? I'm really not feeling the love right now. What is going on? Now, how many times have we had moments like that? I'm not asking per hour. I'm asking. But we do, don't we? We come to those natural, where things go wrong. And we, God, why? If we read the next verse, and this is the verse that I think the people would have responded to, verse 34, because Jeremiah says this, their Redeemer, talking to Assyria, talking to Babylon, their Redeemer, let me tell you, Babylon, let me tell you, Assyria, the people that you've taken, their Redeemer is strong. The Lord of hosts is his name. He will surely plead their cause that he may give rest to the earth, but unrest to the inhabitants of Babylon. <laughs> and you're in Babylon. You're in that Psalm 126 where it said, Sing to us, the Babylonians said, Sing to us one of the songs of Zion. We can't. We've hung our harps on the tree. In other words, we are just so despairing. We don't know what's going on. We are the worshippers. That's why we carry harps. So we've put them on a tree because what do we need those anymore for? We don't understand. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and they asked of us a song. Boney M, if you're older than <clears throat> you'd remember Boney M. And that's it. You see, this is the despair of the people. What's going on? Jeremiah, you've got to be kidding. How can you say God is good, God is strong? When we're going through hell here, I wonder how many people thought Jeremiah had it easy. So here's the question that they would have, I guess, asked. How can you say this, Jeremiah, when there's absolutely no proof? 
God claims to be all-powerful, but there's no proof to it. Where's the proof? Where's the proof of his power? If he's so powerful, he could have stopped this. He could have let all the others go to misery and preserved me at least. Why didn't he at least do that? You can feel the angst. And perhaps there are some, in fact, I know that there are some here today, and you've been covering this up. It's been an internal thing for you. And I want to give you five reasons, five reasons why God may choose not to demonstrate his power. And I know that there are some who say, claim the promises because, because you, the promise is that if you ask anything in my name, um, there it will be granted to you. I know that, but that's only one verse. Don't forget the others, which also have something to say about why God doesn't answer your prayer. See, if I was to ask you, does God always answer your prayer? I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you I think he does. But don't confuse that with saying he always grants what we ask for. We used to teach our kids about the wish list and say, okay, what do you want? Because I said to my kids, my answer will always be, no matter what you ask for, my answer will be yes. But that was a comma after the yes. Did you hear the comma? Yes. Let's just figure out how. And I can't answer the when. I digress a little bit. But here's five reasons why God may choose not to answer your prayer. He may not choose to demonstrate his power. And I've got to tell you, I find this frustrating. If there's, there's something I find frustrating about God, it's, it's sort of summed up in that phrase that C.S. Lewis used to describe God when he was crying out to God for his wife, Joy Gresham, who developed... Um, cancer in her femur and, and, and she was dying and given not long to live and he, he was cr- crying out to God and, he, and this, this phrase that he used to describe God is he's not a tame lion he's not a tame lion hmm. God may choose not to work his power and grant you what you're asking for because he may be doing something else. And, and God doesn't answer your prayer and the years go by and aren't you thankful, parents, and aren't you thankful, <laughs> teenage girl who's now in your 20s, that God knows what's best. He may, the reason he may not be working his power in the way that you've asked and you wanted is because he may be working in ways right now that you don't understand. I'm not that old, but I've probably got less time on earth than I've already had on earth. And I know that from the limited time that I've been on earth, I've seen this over and over and over. Is, has anyone else experienced this? There you go, half the church. Number four, not only may God be doing something else, but the answer may be, yeah, I will, but just hang on a minute. I've just got a couple of other things. So God may be waiting for other facets of his plan. It's interesting that we, we look at this context of the Jews being taken away to Babylon. And, and while they were there, we know that Daniel led the emperor to God, Nebuchadnezzar, converted to worship of the Jews as well. And we see that 
that when, by the time we come, you know, a couple of generations down the track, we see Ezra, who, who's a part of the Babylonian system, and, 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 and the Jews then have had a tremendous influence on the Babylonians who became the Medo-Persians and, and these people of, of the Medo-Persian uh, uh, Medo area uh, were influenced by a guy by the name of Zoroaster. Zoroaster was, is an interesting guy. And when they began to talk with the Jews, they realised that much of what they had been hoping for as far as God was like, they began to hear this was the God of the Bible. And so... One of the things that happened in the culture of the Medo-Persians was this expectation of the Jewish hope. What was the Jewish hope? The Messiah. And so they began to look to the stars, because that was a part of their system, for a sign from the God of the Bible when he would send the hope of the world to earth. And so we read in Luke Chapter 2, that wise men came from the east, Medo-Persia, to Jerusalem, looking for him who had been born, the king, because of what was happening at this time. You see, God has a plan, and sometimes the setbacks for us are not setbacks, they're advancements for his plan. It's not very exciting, is it? but I want to lead somewhere. Number three, God may be, and we see this in Romans where Paul says, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But then in Romans chapter one, he says, sometimes God just hands people over. Why doesn't he intervene? Because sometimes he hands people over. And so we see number three is God may be wanting people to come to repentance. And sometimes the only way you can come to repentance is for him just to lift his hands off you. And, and I want you now to think of the prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son. Why didn't the father, the day he heard his boy had run out of money, why didn't the father leave his veranda, go into town and say, come on, son, this is ridiculous. You keep going like this, you'll, be, you'll end up eating pig swill. And he didn't do that. And God the Father, Jesus is telling us, is sometimes like that. He'll lift his hands and go, okay, you need to feel what bottom feels like. You need to hit bottom in order for you to get it. Number two, God may be willing for people to receive the consequences of their choices or their actions. The young girl that maybe if you can uh, flex this much through no fault of her own, finds herself after a party, waking up in someone's bed and she doesn't know where she is and she hasn't got any clothes on and then in a few weeks' time what normally happens doesn't happen and she begins to panic and she goes to church that Sunday and prays, God, don't, please don't let me be pregnant. And maybe... God has reasons why consequences carry out to their full end. God has reasons for that. And I hope in a context like that, that we as a church don't finger wag. And number one, and this is the big one. We've counted down to number one. I think this is the big one. God may be yearning for his people to learn to trust him. 
someone, I was reading a commentator from the 1800s and he, he said this, it's not until you're pushed to your limits do you know what your limits are. It's not until you're pushed to your limits do you realise that the scope of solving your situation is not within your limits. It's in turning to God. And I wish number one wasn't true, but unfortunately, or maybe I shouldn't say that, maybe, I, sh maybe I, I need to preach this to me, because it's in number one, it's in this one, that God wants us to learn to trust him, despite the fact that it just doesn't seem to make sense if I do right now. It just doesn't make sense. Proverbs 3 verse 5, we sometimes hear this when someone wants to encourage people to give. And it says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. And it really, this is the verse I want etched into your soul today. I think if more Christians just simply lived like this, Tasmania would look different. Our church would look different. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And we were singing some songs and I was thinking, knowing what I was going to be saying, I was, we were singing these songs and I thought, how many people are singing these songs going, yeah, I can do that right now. Oh God, you're so good. Oh God, you're awesome. Oh God, I love you. Oh God, I totally trust you. Because <laughs> everything's just so wonderful at the moment. You are just awesome to trust right now. But what happens when everything's not awesome? God has his own perfect reasons for when and how he demonstrates his power. The question for us is, are we trusting him? More from Dr. Corbett next week. Podcasts and Finding Truth Matters resources, including tonight's program, The Redeemer is Strong, are available via the website findingtruthmatters.org or by contacting us at Lagana Media, PO Box 1143, Lagana, Tasmania 7277. For updates and special offers, please visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash findingtruthmatters. Dr Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.